Thanks for tuning in to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, we have some uh, follow-up from a very uh, a good program that we did uh, last week. It was uh, titled Doing Good in Our Communities, and we opened the phone lines to allow you to highlight uh, nonprofits or church groups or individuals doing good in our communities. We want to encourage, of course, this good work being done and uh, and get some positive news amid uh, the negative news. And uh, we certainly did that. And uh, thank you for joining the program. We have some follow-up uh, emails uh, to that program. Here's an email from Hillary. Uh, she says, The Cash Interagency Council meets on the fourth Wednesday of the month at noon. I think in the program I previously we'd given uh, the wrong um, Wednesday of the month. So it's the fourth Wednesday of the month at noon. For 2017, our meetings will be held at the Sizzler Restaurant, 11.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. Our annual fall conference is held on the fourth Wednesday in October from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. and features topics to help us better serve our community. And we'll take a break in August and December. So again, that's uh, the good work being done by the Cash Interagency Council. They meet on the fourth Wednesday of the month uh, at uh, at noon for 2017 meetings held at Sizzler. 11.30 a.m. is when those start. Thanks for that, uh, Hillary. We move next to uh, Sasha. Um uh, I'll give the full name because of the title, Sasha Broadstone, Director of Education, Stokes Nature Center. Sasha writes in, Stokes Nature Center is a nonprofit organization here in Logan that seeks to provide opportunities for students of all ages to explore and fall in love with nature. We're currently renting snowshoes for the whole family for $5 a day or $12 for the weekend. And if you want a guided tour of Logan Canyon's winter wonderland, join us for our annual Sweetheart Snowshoe on February 11th, or on one of our many naturalist winter walks, nature ta- uh, tales, or our weekly story time for kids will be held January 18th at 11 a.m. at the Whittier Center. Stay tuned to our Facebook and website for even more fun activities in nature later this spring and summer. You won't want to miss our Canyon Jams concert series, adult workshops, summer camps, spring fest, and so much more. Follow us on Facebook, Stokes Nature Center, and our website is logannature.org. Thanks for that, uh, Sasha. Next up is Mon in southern Utah. Mon says, thanks for the wonderful radio show. For the past seven years, I've been a volunteer trail steward for Red Cliffs Nature Desert Reserve, a magnificent 62,000-acre wildlife reserve in the southwest corner of the state that runs over the heads of the cities of Ivan, Santa Clara, St. George, Washington, and Hurricane. The reserve is managed cooperatively by Washington County Bureau of Land Management, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Utah's Department of Natural Resources, and the State of Utah School and Institutional Trust Lands Administration. It was established to recover the threatened Mojave Desert tortoise and contains thousands of miles of trails for hikers, bikers, and equestrians. It's one of the most beautiful wilderness areas I've ever hiked in, and I'm surprised how few people, locals, and visitors even know it exists. The reserve takes on a small cadre of volunteer trail stewards who are trained to be ambassadors on the trails, counting wildlife, conducting minor trail maintenance, and reminding people to please stay on the trails and keep their dogs leashed. The Red Cliffs Desert Reserve has a visitor center in St. George where folks can learn about the reserve, pick up a map of the trails, and fill out volunteer application. Maps and applications can also be found on the reserve's terrific website, redcliffsdesertreserve.com. That's redcliffsdesertreserve.com. That's Mon in southern Utah. Thanks for that heads up, and uh, thanks for uh, all of the good you do out there with our nonprofits, individuals, and uh, church groups. Keep those uh, spotlights coming in. Those heads up about the good being done in our communities by emailing us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. In his new book, Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World, Stephen Johnson argues that the pursuit of novelty and wonder 
is a powerful driver of world-shaping technological change and that throughout history, the cutting edge of innovation lies wherever people are working the hardest to keep themselves and others amused. Johnson introduces us to the explorers, proprietors, showmen, and artists who have changed the trajectory of history with their luxurious wares, exotic meals, taverns, gambling tables, and magic shows. And he says you'll find the future wherever people are having the most fun. Stephen Johnson is author of eight bestsellers, including How We Got to Now, Where Good Ideas Come From, The Invention of Error, The Ghost Map, and Everything Bad is Good for You. He's the editor of the anthology The Innovator's Cookbook. Most recently, he's the author of Wonderland, as I mentioned, and he's founder of a variety of influential websites, including Outside.in. He writes for Time, Wired, New York Times, and Wall Street Journal, and he lives in Marin County, California, with his wife and three sons. Stephen Johnson joins us for the hour. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, we appreciate you also coming to uh, Northern Utah just uh, recently. Uh, your book, How We Got to Now, is the common literature experience uh, book for our incoming freshmen at Utah State University uh, this uh, past August. So uh, you visited the campus. Appreciate you doing that. Yeah, I had a great time. What a beautiful campus. It was, it was lovely to be there. and Great students. And I taught one of those sections. My students enjoyed the book, so it's, uh, it, was, it was good good discussion, a good jumping-off point. Understand, this is uh, this new book is also an innovation, and uh, I guess is a, you see it as a follow-up, sequel to How We Got to Now? Yeah, exactly. Um, it's a sequel with a, bit, with a little bit of a twist. So with How We Got to Now, which you know was both a book and a, and a PBS series, we were looking at the history of innovation, and there were kind of six... Um, technologies or, or, or breakthroughs that were so commonplace that we kind of take them for granted. We don't even think of them as innovation anymore, like clean drinking water in a big city or electric light and things like that. And, and the, the fun of that book and of that show was kind of tracing the history of these now familiar things and talking about the brilliant ideas that made them possible and also the kind of unintended consequences of these, of these breakthroughs over, over time. And I, that format is was really a lot of fun, and there are just so many stories that you can tell historically um, about these different things. But I wanted with Wonderland to do something on top of that structure, which was to make an overarching argument about the, the forces driving historical change or driving progress, um, not just tell stories, you know, the kind of secret history of these everyday objects. And so that's what Wonderland does. It takes the kind of the, the, the innovation history format of how we got to now, but adds this layer, which is, as you said in the introduction, is really about the tremendous impact of the kind of the playful imagination um, on our history, uh, which I think we, we tend to underestimate and, and kind of dismiss for being frivolous or, or being childlike. But in fact, it's a, it's a really important part of human culture. I wonder if you could uh, t- tell us in brief the, the story. You begin the book with the the Banu Mas Musa and uh, the Book of Ingenious Devices, which is fascinating. Yeah. Well, I mean, a big theme of the book, in addition to the theme of play, is how, how much play and delight is are woven into the history of globalization. It's a very kind of global book in many ways, and, and it opens, as you suggest, with this um, this place in Baghdad at the um, at the height of the... Uh, Islamic golden age, more than a thousand years ago. Um, and there was an institution in Baghdad called the the House of Wisdom, which is also a great name. And there were these three brothers who worked in the House of Wisdom, which was kind of a think tank and an engineering lab and a translation bureau. It was kind of a mix of different things. And and the, these guys, the Banu Musa, um, 
came up with these brilliant engineering breakthroughs that were um, uh, kind of diagrammed and illustrated in these books like the book of um, Ingenious Devices. And they included, you know, engineering ideas that were hundreds of years ahead of anything that was happening in Europe. There were these kind of hydraulic systems and float valves and extremely accurate clocks and all these amazing tools and and techniques. But if you look at the book that they produced and and the beautiful illustrations of all these objects, they're all toys. They're all little, you know, kind of automated animals. um, And, you know, there's an elephant clock and there's a little peacock that gives you a piece of soap or a little man who kind of hands you something. And, And they're musical instruments. I mean, none of them are actually doing anything really functional. They're all just amusements. But they contain inside they contain inside them all these kind of radical engineering ideas. And so that really is the kind of the, the, the kind, of, kind of setting the tone for the book that, that sometimes in what looks like a, what looks like a toy ends up being this this radical breakthrough. And you and you're right, just read this paragraph. There is a puzzle lurking in the genius of Banu Musa and Al Jazari. How can it be that such advanced engineering expertise should be devoted to toys? Revolutionary ideas diagrammed in the pages of these ancient books would eventually transform the industrial world, but those ideas first came into being as playthings, illusions, it's magic. You write elsewhere that, um, you know, you, you do uh, give a, a tip of the cap to the, the old saying, necessity is the mother of invention. But you go on to say, if you do a paternity test on many of the world's most important ideas or institutions, you'll find invariably leisure and play were involved in the conception as well. I mean, one of the things that the Banu Musa also invented that is, and it was in a separate manuscript that was almost lost, actually, we just recovered it about 100 years ago, um, is they came up with a, a device they called the instrument that plays itself. And it basically was a kind of a music box. It could c- control a an organ that could then control a little kind of robotic flute player, so you could make it look like this little kind of android was playing a, a flute. But what was so radical about this breakthrough was it was... Um, you could control it with a uh, what they called a pinned cylinder, a rotating cylinder with little pins like in a music box that each pin corresponded to the notes you wanted it to play. And what the Banu Musa came up with, which was the, the, the truly uh, radical new idea, is that you could take out the cylinder and create a new one with different pins corresponding to different notes, and you could basically swap it back in, and the instrument would play a completely different song. And this was really the birth of the whole idea of programmability, that you had a machine that was designed, that was kind of open-ended in its design, and by creating a different kind of code, you could give it new instructions to behave in a, in a different way. And that's really the beginning of the kind of distinction between hardware and software that is obviously so essential now in, in the digital age. But it came into the world as a, as a kind of a musical device, basically, as a, as a toy that you know, would just entertain us. It didn't seem like such a profound idea, but it actually had the seeds of something that really changed the world. So the, the player piano that actually involves programming, right, as we think of it today, it's, it's, it's programming. Yeah, player piano, there's, there's, it turns out there's a really interesting, rich, kind of two-way connection between music and computers. Um, I think, it, and, and the reason for that is kind of an interesting thing to, to puzzle over. I think it's because music is so mathematical and can be kind of converted into notation, which is a kind of code, and then you can use that code to control machines. But if you think about it today, just just calculate in your head how many experiences we have in our lives where some form of entertainment is 
whether it's a, a movie or a podcast, uh, a radio program, or a, a digital book, or whatever it is, is translated into some kind of code, you know, digital code, and then we load it onto a device, and then that code is translated back into a form so that we can enjoy the movie or the song or whatever it is, right? That is all of modern entertainment it involves that kind of encoding and decoding process. And the first way in which that kind of entered our lives was really, in, in terms of popular culture, was the player piano. People would get these you know, automated pianos in their homes or in a bar or in a restaurant or so on, and, and you would buy music encoded in punched paper rolls um, instead of a pin cylinder like the, the Baghdad brothers had done. And you know, you would pay for this encoded music and you would put it into the machine and then the machine would play for you. And that was really the first time we started to think of, in a sense, a kind of software as being something that you would purchase uh, and then enjoy in the kind of privacy of your own home. In fact, uh, growing up, we had a, a neighbor with player piano and I, I found it so cool. It was interesting. It was music. But it was also a sense of wonder, right? A sense of how is that working? Uh, it's, so it was a kind of a double delight. The, uh, uh, one of the recurring themes of the book is um, the delight we experience when machines kind of come to life in some fashion, right? That's what the Banamusa were doing. That's what the uh, famous uh, automatons of the 18th century where people created these lifelike animals or, or humans who could could behave in these kind of eerie, um, animated way, uh, seemingly, even though they were a machine, they seemed to have a kind of life to them. And a player piano has that kind of thing. It almost looks like a, you know, like a ghost is playing the piano. The keys actually move as, uh, as it's, uh, as it's being played by this kind of paper roll. And it's funny, actually, if you've seen the, the HBO show, uh, Westworld that was, that, that aired earlier this year, they have a whole, it's, of course, it's all about basically robots that are passing for humans. And, and the whole opening sequence of it is all about player pianos. So this whole <laughs> elaborate player piano kind of theme, because of course mm. it's set in the in the old west. <laughs> and uh, and when I saw that credit sequence, of the book was just about to come out. I thought, oh my god, <laughs> like I'm completely in sync with the zeitgeist here. If the HBO shows are talking about the same issues. <laughs> you can't can't plan that. Um, <laughs> I, I wonder you you talk about how um, if you if you go back in the archaeological record, way way back. There are examples of purely decorative tool making, um, you know, bone flutes among the oldest known artifacts. This is a human impulse, isn't it? Uh, fun, wonder, delight, um, trying to amaze one another. Yeah, human is a really important word to use there because it, yeah, if you go back and look at the, the earliest kind of technology devised by humans, you would expect to find things like you know, weapons, projectiles of some sort, or, or sewing tools to, you know, help you create clothes that would keep you warm in the winter. Those are the kind of necessity as a mother of invention. Things we need to find food, we need to stay warm in the winter. These are the things we need, so we better invent things. But at the exact same period in our early, you know, kind of Paleolithic history, you see, for instance, um, jewelry, there's evidence of kind of necklaces and other forms of purely decorative garments um, uh, that are at least 80,000 years old. And there's evidence of musical instruments that are about that old. We certainly know that there were both these bone flutes um, that uh, are at least 45,000 years old and maybe maybe even earlier. So I, I think that it's, it's worth it just to think about it for a second. You know, you're sitting there, you're a, 
early human or maybe a Neanderthal 45,000 years ago. And, you know, you've invented, you've mastered fire, um, you know, you've invented some basic tools for sewing and for, for hunting and, 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 you know, a few other things like that. There's a whole world of technology left to invent. <laughs> what, what are you going to prioritize, right? What are you going to do next? And what, what they seem to have decided to do is to invent flutes, <laughs> which just seems like, in a way, on some level, a preposterous waste of time. It doesn't do anything functional. It just makes an interesting sound. Um, it just creates interesting kind of patterns in sound waves uh, that resonate in your ears in, the, in a kind of surprising way. And yet, that's exactly what our ancestors did. They they were they had all these important things that they still needed to invent, but they also sought these kind of magical experiences. And that that interest in um, delight and in beauty and in um, and that kind of play is just a, a really crucial part of who we are as a species. And it in it one of the things that's lovely about it is that it it drives us to when we're seeking out new experiences, when we're seeking out new forms of delight, we're very creative. And oftentimes those creations then lead to uh, more useful ideas, as in, you know, the music box leading to the to the computer. So it's not just delight for delight's sake. It also turns out to be functional in the end. I was going to ask you, what, what's, what is that crucial connection to innovation? And it, it, is, is it that creativity? We're working in a creative space when we're having fun. Yes, it's. I think it's two things. So the first is when you're in. I mean, there's a lot of interesting kind of psychology on this. When you're in that kind of playful state, um, you you have a almost by definition a kind of openness to new experiences. Um, so you're um, you're making new connections. Uh, you're not narrowly focused on something. You're, you're you're making new links of association. And the other thing is that so much of it is predicated on surprise, right? You when what was so amazing in watching a, uh, you know, automated flute player in Baghdad in 800 AD was the fact that you'd never seen anything like that before. It was new uh, when you heard the sound of a bone flute 45,000 years ago, and you heard a you know beautiful tone coming from this instrument. It didn't. It sounded like nothing you'd ever heard before. Um, and so that novelty is a big part of the the experience, but the but the important thing about novelty is that it needs to be continually refreshed, right? If you grow up <laughs> listening to your parents' bone flutes, <laughs> you're going to want a new sound, right? Because mm-hmm. you've, you've heard bone flutes your whole life. They aren't surprising. And so when we seek out surprising, delightful experiences, there's a kind of, uh, by definition, there's a kind of an expansion. You're always looking for new surprises. And so that forces you to make new discoveries or invent new kinds of instruments. I mean, just look at it. The, there's a whole chapter in the book on the history of musical instruments just think of by the by say 1600 when the first um you know orchestras are officially kind of coming together just think of the number of musical instruments that had been invented by that point and we spent all this time in, with very advanced engineering and material science and and you know kind of proto physics trying to make interesting new sounds um and that that part of our history is a really a great part of kind of the history of culture is the invention of all these different instruments. You also write, uh, play is often about breaking the rules, experimenting with new conventions. And so I, I see how that you know there'd be a connection to innovation there. It, yeah, exactly. And and it's one of the places where, for instance, there's a there's a big chapter, uh, the opening chapter really of the book um, is on the history of fashion, and 
there's a, a really, you know, a, a number of kind of interesting points in, in that history where the world has changed because people get interested in a new fabric or a new pattern. Um, the appetite for calico and chintz, um, these new cotton fabrics from India, again, a kind of a global connection that that really sparked the Industrial Revolution, led to um, led to the kind of textile revolutions uh, of the 17th uh, and 18th century. Um, but with fashion, you can look at it and say, this is to your question about breaking the rules, you can look at fashion and say, well, listen, you know, once people started obsessing over, you know, what was the new fashionable uh, outfit or color or, you know, fabric that year, which really that kind of annual cycle of fashion really started to to take off during the 1700s as people began to, you know, think about, you know, an annual kind of, this is the look this year. Um, you can look at that history and say, well, geez, people spent a lot of time wasting time, <laughs> you know, trying to figure out if the dress they bought last year was still going to be, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Uh, palatable to people, or if it was out of fashion and they had to get a new dress. And when you look at that and say, well, that's a lot of frivolous kind of behavior, but what it creates in a society is, again, this openness to new experiences and this willingness to to change and to, you know, last year's look, well, we're going to break those rules and we're going to come up with a new look. And there's a really interesting argument that that a number of historians have made, most famously Braudel, who's one of the great historians of the last 20 or 30 years, about the connection between societies that got interested in fashion, like, for instance, the French, um, and the the political revolutions that shortly followed after that kind of turn towards fashion. And what Bardot was saying is that maybe there's something about a society that, instead of just seeing that interest in fashion as, as being frivolous or as being superficial, maybe there's something about a, a willingness to change and reinvent the rules and come up with new looks that also then leads to a willingness to do that same kind of reinvention in the political sphere or in the social sphere and, and challenging authority, challenging the conventions um, comes into the world in the form of fashion, but maybe it then it kind of infects these other domains that are more traditional kind of serious history. Before we take a break uh, um, and, uh, and talk about some other things, I want to have you talk about the Calico Madams. Pamphlets yeah. apparently denounced Calico Madams for undermining the economy. You say, in reality, the, the, the Calico Madams uh, helped to uh, help to spur on the age of industrial and economic growth. Absolutely. Did you want to take a break? Uh, or uh, 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 talk, uh, talk about this first, and then we'll take a break. Okay, great. Um, yeah, so the, what happens at the end of the uh, 1600s is these women, largely in London, begin to get this uh, kind of obsession with this fabric from India, um, calico and, and chintz, um, both cotton fabrics, fabrics that have beautiful designs on them, colorful kind of patterns. And there, there's an important innovation with this, both the, the, the soft fabric of cotton, but also the the Indian dyers who had come up with this technique for creating calico and chintz had figured out this way to have the the colors uh, be much more durable so you could wash them multiple times and they wouldn't fade away, which was a big breakthrough. So uh, starting around 1675, 1680, women in London become, you know, well-to-do women in London become obsessed with these fabrics and they, and they start to wear them both as outer garments but also as underwear, which was a real breakthrough because up until that point people wore wool underwear and you can imagine rainy London 
<laughs> cold London with wool underwear would not be that nice an experience. And uh, uh, this craze for cotton develops. The East India Company makes a vast fortune importing these fabrics, um, and a huge trade imbalance opens up with India. And it sparks a political backlash where all of a sudden the kind of the, the traditional wool industry of, of northern in, uh, England is being devastated by this interest in this exotic new fabric from across the world. And so these women who are buying it are, are, are publicly shamed and they're branded, as you said, as, as calico madams. And somehow their kind of sensual interest in, uh, in cotton is undermining the English economy. And they, there's this massive series of pamphlets and poems and, and songs written against these, these women. And it kind of creates what you might call a make England's wool industry great again kind of movement where, where cotton and calico and, and chins are actually banned for a brief period of time. But at the same time, in the midst of this kind of backlash, a, a, a different group of people start to say, well, wait a second, what if we could actually use some of our technological ingenuity to create new steam-powered machines that could actually manufacture these fabrics here in England. And that is literally the birth of the Industrial Revolution. I mean, the, you know, the, that, was, that was what those first-generation machines were really used to produce, is textiles like cotton. And so what had turned initially what had seemed like just this kind of frivolous interest in fashion and a fabric and then turned into this kind of political backlash ended up, again, being the seed uh, to arguably, certainly at that point, the most important te- technological revolution uh, of all time. We're talking with Stephen Johnson. He's a best-selling author of uh, How We Got to Now, and now Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World. And uh, we will talk more following this break. It will open the phone lines, 800-826-1495. would love to get your comment or question for Stephen Johnson, 800-826-1495. Or you can reach us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We already have an email from Creed with a question for our guest. More following this break. I'm Jeremy Hobson. As Barack Obama's presidency comes to an end, a look back at the promises he made. I tracked about 15 or 20 promises he made, and he came through on most of them. But he didn't make the progress that I think he hoped he would on inequality, in part because there's only so much a president can do. That's next time on Here and Now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Abby Roach is known in some circles as the Spoon Lady. She's a professional spoon player. She's also a busker. You'll hear about her project to collect and archive some of the greatest busking sounds ever made. And it won't even cost you a quarter. It's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access U-Time. Tom Williams, our guest, is New York Times bestseller, uh, best-selling author Stephen Johnson. Uh, he's author of such bestsellers as How We Got to Now, Where Good Ideas Come From, The Invention of Error, The Ghost Map, Everything Bad is uh, Good for You. He's the editor of the anthology The Innovator's Cookbook. The latest book is Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World. And he says, you'll find the future wherever people are having the most fun. Uh, play 
is a great driver of innovation, uh, he says. You can join this conversation, hope that you will, uh, by telephone, toll-free. Number is 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Stephen Joss, we have this email from Creed, um, who uh, harkens back to earlier in our conversation. Uh, he asks, why does your guest call the early inventions toys rather than prototypes? Was there any information included in the archaeological records indicating their purpose or intentions? Well, many of these uh, early, uh, the, the Baghdad inventions, um, and also the uh, their kind of descendants in the automatons that were invented in the 1600s and 1700s, um, they were uh, really entertainment devices um, for, you know, you would go, there was a, the, the custom in in the 1700s was that, you, you know, you would attend a salon in Paris or something like that, and everyone would sit around in a lovely drawing room, and these inventors would bring out <laughs> these crazy machine devices. There was this kind of famous thing called the digesting duck um, that was invented by a French inventor named Vaucanson, who plays a big role in the book. And uh, it was an anatomically incredibly accurate, lifelike duck that you could feed food, and then it would actually kind of digest the food and defecate in front of the amazed mm. onlookers. And it again, this invention had no purpose other than, uh, you know, amusement. And, the, and these inventors basically worked for you know, kind of the princes and, and kings and other members of the aristocracy basically to, you know, impress their, you know, their court with these uh, amazing contraptions. But they did lead, particularly in the 1700s, they did lead to directly to more traditional industrial ideas. So there's a kind of direct link between, um, for instance, automated, uh, the automated looms um, of the Industrial Revolution and these automated uh, kind of mini miniature robots or prototypes of robots, as you might, as as, uh, as Creed might call it, um, and the the song who designed this this digesting duck um, is a direct contributor to the Jacquard loom, which is the uh, loom that could be programmed with punch cards, um, so that you could basically encode uh, patterns of fabric just as um, the Banu Musa had encoded patterns of music, um, but in Jacquard's loom, which was really one of the great technological breakthroughs of the 19th century, uh, you were encoding that information in, in, in paper, um, which was much cheaper uh, and much easier to c- kind of create new patterns if you wanted to. You didn't have to build a whole new kind of metallic cylinder. And as most of your listeners probably remember, at least some of us who were a little older, um, punch cards became an important part of actual computers. In fact, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when I was in, you know, kind of second grade, my school got a computer in the 70s, and it was still, it still used punch cards. I remember seeing punch cards kind of lying around uh, in the classroom. So that, that technology went, you know, kind of straight from uh, somebody making a device to amuse the Parisian elite to somebody making a device to make fabric and interesting patterns of fabric to computers, you know, 150 years later. Mm. Uh, one of the big themes of this book and I, uh, is interconnectedness, right? There, there are a lot of through lines, even if they are uh, somewhat inter- interrupted. I'm thinking about your chapter on illusion 
And I wonder if you could uh, spend some a little bit of time telling us about uh, David Brewster and his uh, yeah. stereoscope. And there is a through line, albeit uninterrupted, to today's virtual reality uh, goggles. Yeah, that's, I, that's a really fun chapter. That was a really fun one to to research, particularly. Um, there's a fascinating character named David Brewster, as you said, who who was a kind of classic polymath in the 19th century. He's a Scottish um, scientist, uh, was leading kind of scholar of optics um, and the way that kind of what we now call visual intelligence, so the way that the brain processes, interprets the world visually. Uh, but he was also kind of a tinkerer, and he, he was really interested in all these illusion shows that had developed um, in London and other European cities around that period that people would go in. It was kind of predecessors of the of the cinema, was, you know, 100 years before the cinema was invented. And people would go in and they would see magic lantern projections, and there, there were these kind of haunted houses like the Phantasmagoria. They all had these great names, or the, or the Panorama, which was a word that was actually coined for this exhibit, which was a 360-degree painting that you could stand in the middle of. And Brewster analyzed all these illusion shows and, and tried to understand what was happening to the brain when it, when, it, when it was tricked, basically, when it was deceived into seeing something that literally wasn't there, what was going on in the brain. And he understood rightly that you could learn something about the visual system uh, of, of the human brain by, by looking at the ways in which that system could be fooled, which is kind of an interesting approach. But he, he was also an inventor and a tinkerer, and he, he came up with uh, two things. He invented this, the kaleidoscope um, and didn't really see a penny from that because other people quickly copied his invention, and it became a huge rage, but uh, he didn't really profit from it. But then later on, he invented the stereoscope, um, which... You know, again, I'm dating myself here, but we, some of us remember growing up looking at a Viewmaster where you see two um, still images, um, and one in front of the left eye, one in front of the right eye, and you, your brain kind of fuses those two images into a 3D um, version of the picture. Well, Brewster kind of invented this device, and it was properly branded and called Brewster's Stereoscope, and it was a big hit. It was kind of like the PlayStation of <laughs> the Victorian era, and he he actually did make some money from that. But what's important about this is it was, you know, basically people would get these stereoscopic images and they would look at, you know, the pyramids or they would look at, um, you know, the Nile or, or you know, some city across the world. Um, but that same principle uh, that Brewster was exploiting, this kind of optical illusion of faking your brain into thinking it's seeing a three-dimensional scene, is exactly the principle that makes virtual reality possible today when you when we put on these you know state of the art new technologies put on VR goggles we are relying on a, a kind of an innovation that David Brewster this scientist um, first figured out uh, 150 years ago and you uh, you compare and contrast it that's very interesting you you contrast the cinema which we're all familiar with and uh, you know the the uh, nowadays the quick cuts and the uh, but but there's a whole range of experience you can you can have sort of seeing things through others eyes you contrast that with virtual reality i just want to read something here that you wrote the paradox of virtual reality is that when you see the world through someone else's eyes you can't actually see the person's eyes you can see what the person is seeing but it's much harder to grasp what he or she is feeling cinematic close-up conveys emotional depth far more effectively than point of view shot in a 360 degree film uh, can that's an interesting juxtaposition or con contrast contrasting of those two mediums 
Yeah, I, I developed some of this. This is some of this is from um, a piece I wrote for the Times Magazine. That's kind of building on that chapter of, and looking at kind of what what is virtual reality going to be good at. And I think actually looking back to those illusion shows of the early 19th century actually gives us a, a an interesting hint about what virtual reality may end up being as a kind of creative form, as a cultural form. Um, because one of the things you see when you look at those uh, those early illusion shows is they're not really stories. They're not really about characters and following a character through their quest or their romantic struggles or their you know battles or their investigation of a mystery or whatever you know all the kind of conventions that we think of when we think about storytelling and particularly storytelling in movies um the illusion shows were much more about being immersed in a space and dropping yourself into a world and whether it was kind of a haunted house or whether it was a panorama simulation of a rooftop view of london or they would sometimes recreate military battles and some of these things with special effects and it wasn't so much about following a plot and following characters as it was about being in an interesting environment and just hanging out in that environment. And I think that that's, you know, when people are thinking about what VR is going to be good at and they think about how do we tell a great story like a great Hollywood movie tells a great story, I think maybe they, the people have it wrong and that in a way what we'll really enjoy about VR is is being immersed in an interesting place, and we won't really necessarily want to follow a preordained narrative. Um, we'll just want to kind of explore the space. And the kind of analogy I use in that piece is if if you made Titanic for VR, you know, the, the epic James Cameron film, um, in movie form, you follow the arc of these different characters, and there's a scrappy young stowaway, and there's a well-to-do woman trapped in a you know, arranged marriage, she doesn't want to be in. But in the VR version of that, I don't think you would want any of that. I think you would just want to be on the sinking ship and, you know, run around and experience it. You wouldn't necessarily want to follow a plot. And that, and I think that's one of the ways in which we can learn from looking back at this past history. And, and, and as you said at the beginning, it's one of the ways in which I think these past playful escapades are actually an interesting prediction of future events. They help us kind of see what's what's coming next. You conclude that uh, that article in New York Times. There turns out to be a surprisingly meditative quality to the world we inhabit with VR goggles on. This could well turn out to be the most magical trick of all, harnessing all this advanced technology to slow us down and make us wonder again. That- if if you've, any of you have have been listening, have, have been and have tried virtual reality, one of the things you find is that when a lot is going on, when you have the kind of the 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 rhythm of what we've grown accustomed to with TV and movies now where you have kind of fast cuts and you're moving around and lots of it's very disorienting it's it's not pleasant um, in fact just a cut where you shift perspective suddenly is very disorienting because you feel like you're in a in a real environment and so the idea of jumping from one place to another is is kind of shocking whereas when we sit in front of a screen we expect that to happen and movies are constantly shot you know where they're changing perspectives you know sometimes multiple times a second now we've developed a great kind of skill for appreciating that as an audience. But in VR, you you really, maybe it's just because we're new at it, but it, it seems to me that there's something about it that is just much more meditative and and immersive and slower in a weird way. And, and that piece I talk about going and <laughs> interacting with this musical jellyfish that someone had created, where this is a giant kind of glowing 3D jellyfish, and you can 
touch it, and it responds to your touch, and theoretically down the line they were going to design it so that it would make different kinds of music. And it really was just you just wanted to hang out there. Again, you didn't you didn't want a lot of cuts. You didn't want a lot of dynamic change, and you didn't want a story. You didn't need a story. You just were hanging out with this really interesting kind of experience with a jellyfish that you would never possibly be able to do in the real world. Uh, it certainly would have been a lot more painful with an actual jellyfish. <laughs> yeah, that's the advantage, I guess, of the virtual part of it, yeah. Uh, let's take another break. When we come back, uh, I want to make sure we talk about uh, your, your chapter on public space. Uh, this one maybe right. struck me most of all, maybe because on this program we do a lot of talk about public lands, and there's uh, controversies, but also a lot of our listeners uh, really do find rejuvenation by getting out uh, into into nature. Um, and after the break, I want to have you talk about the tavern. You say the idea of the tavern was innovative in and of itself. Uh, more following the break. In Erie, Pennsylvania, the manufacturing industry has slowed, and many are left without the good-paying jobs they had counted on. A guy wants what he had, all right? And what he had was a paycheck he could support his family. And now he's out there working two jobs, wondering what's going to happen next. I'm Molly Wood. The latest installment of our election series with Frontline and PBS, How the Deck is Stacked. That's next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Giuseppe Verdi was overseeing opera rehearsals when his star soprano got sick and the opera had to be delayed. To pass the time, Verdi wrote a string quartet. Later, he said, I don't know if it's beautiful or ugly. I only know it's a quartet. Verdi's one and only string quartet on the next performance today from APM. Join us tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with Stephen Johnson. He is the author of eight bestsellers, including How We Got to Now, and his new book is titled Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World. He argues that uh, the pursuit of novelty and wonder is a powerful driver of world-shaping technological change and that throughout history the cutting edge of innovation lies wherever people are working the hardest to keep themselves and others amused. You can join the conversation by email to upraxcess at gmail.com and by telephone to 1-800-826-1495. We have about 10 minutes left in the conversation. Uh, so, Stephen Johnson, um, this was very interesting to me, uh, the, the idea that, the ta- of course, the tavern is a concept we're very familiar with, but at the time it was very innovative, a space that was both open to the public and closed off from the street. Yeah, I mean, it, the, the broader category here is just spaces, not just, you know, devices or toys or, you know, um, or instruments, but spaces designed explicitly for leisure and, and play. And now the world is filled with these spaces, but um, uh, various kinds, but uh, they had to be invented as well. And, and maybe the first one was the, the, the idea of the tavern, right? There was a space, it wasn't work, it wasn't home, um, it was a semi-public, semi-private space where you would go and have a drink and hang out with, with your friends or meet people. And it was a space specifically kind of designed for that. And, and taverns ended up, in addition to you know, being an important part of uh, you know, the built environment of our towns and cities, uh, they have a crucial political history to them. Um, you, know, you cannot tell the story of the American Revolution without talking about the tavern culture uh, of the colonial uh, 
of the colonies. There, you know, the, the tavern was where um, big works like Common Sense and Declaration of Independence were, were read aloud. It's where people kind of networked and be, began to think about these kind of revolutionary sentiments. And, you know, it, it, uh, the American Revolution almost certainly would have happened had taverns not been invented, but it would have required a different kind of information network um, and gathering place uh, for for those revolutionary ideas to circulate. What, what, what is it about the tavern then, the, 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 the innovation of the idea of the tavern that led to, and you draw a line to LGBT and women's rights, uh, advances there. Yeah, just think about how many, uh, how important bars have been to gay rights movements over the years from Stonewall and, and the Black Cat and, and uh in Los Angeles, it was also uh, an important part of that history. So, th- th- there just seems to be a, a, a place where, in, in a tavern, in part because of the alcohol, but in part because of the, um, the 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 mix of people coming in who aren't necessarily people who you've met before. There's a there's a bending or a pushing of kind of social boundaries that seems to be more likely to happen in in tavern culture. And so, new new ways of Organizing new identities um, start to emerge in those kinds of spaces in ways that are much harder to have them emerge, either you know in a in a home environment or in a work environment or even kind of the public environment of the kind of public square or the commons. There's something about a tavern that gives you a little bit of privacy um, that enables you to experiment with new ways of uh, of identifying yourself um, or you know building your political identity or social identity. So it's a big it's a big part of our history as well. There's another uh, public space that's very um, influential. That's the, the coffee house. Tell me a bit about that. Well, I keep, I'm so obsessed with the history of coffee houses, I keep writing about them, and they've shown up in like three of my <laughs> books, and they show up once again in Wonderland. But yeah, the coffee house really was, the, particularly in England, in the late 1600s, early 1700s, it was the seat of the Enlightenment. It was really where the, the British Enlightenment at least happened. And, and so many business ideas, scientific ideas, um, media notions, the whole idea of kind of magazines um, are created in coffee houses. The first kind of public museums were actually kind of came out of uh, these little kind of curiosity displays that people would have in coffee houses in the 1700s. So it was a really, really important part of uh, certainly British culture, particularly in, in that period. Tell me a bit about uh, De, De uh, Saussure. Is that how you pronounce his name? You say our modern yeah. sense of nature as a space to be enjoyed at recreationally dates back to him. Well, this is this is a nice place to end up, given that we're talking in Utah. Um, but you know, what, uh, one of these inventions that you know we we rarely think about now because we take it for granted. But if you had gone back, kind of 300 years, and asked people living in Europe, say about nature, kind of raw, um, uncivilized nature, people really the the idea of nature is something to be enjoyed and savored and uh, you know appreciated, kind of aesthetically or recreationally, just was not something that people thought at that point. In fact. Interestingly, and this is kind of funny to think about in terms of Utah, mountains were considered to be incredibly hideous and, and terrifying. Really, you know, people would huh. people uh, taking carriages past the Alps in the early 1700s. People would be would ask to be blindfolded so that they wouldn't have to see these monstrous, you know, structures <laughs> off in the uh, off in the distance. And Saussure was one of the first people who kind of encouraged people to. Do, he was a mountain climber himself and, and encouraged people to try and climb uh, the Alps. Um, 
he started encouraging people to think of, of nature as a space to enjoy. And, and this really took off. It took off with the romantics, the romantic both painters and poem, poets who wrote about um, the kind of sublime beauty of, of nature and, and, and did paintings that celebrated that. And so by the middle of the 19th century, people start to think of nature as something that they can go to and enjoy. It's a space for their pleasure and their delight. And that leads to a, a changing relationship to nature and to the environment that's, that kind of culminates in the in the creation of the first national parks like Yosemite and Yellowstone and then many wonderful um, national state parks in, in places like Utah. Mm. And it came out of a different kind of innovation. It's not an invention. It's not a technology, but it's a it's a new idea about how we should appreciate nature that, that was also just as important. Maybe we could conclude. We just have about three minutes left with your chapter on taste. Uh, you say spices enlarge the map of possible desires, which in turn enlarge the map of the world itself. Um, so I want to start with this with this tidbit, which seems very modern. Uh, medieval aristocrats apparently employed spicers. Tell me what do what spicers were. Yeah, a spicer is really so. You know, at this point, um, some of these spices, like pepper, for instance, pepper at this point was was worth in some ways its weight in gold. Uh, it was incredibly valuable, and, and the kind of in a in a an aristocratic or royal um, court, you would have this role of the spicer, and the spicer was a person whose job it was to obtain and keep track of all the spices because they were so valuable. This was, you know, an important asset um, to, that could be stolen theoretically, and it was, you know, they had to be purchased and things like that. But they were also kind of a health guru because spices were considered to be, um, they were really indistinguishable from medicine. Me- medicines were made up of spices, basically. Um, and so the spicer would be there to make sure that your house was stocked with spices, the spices were protected, but also they would advise um, their, you know, <laughs> their employers on which spices were going to help them with their intestinal distress or to help them with their heart palpitations or, you know, I mean, literally they would prescribe spices for curing cancer and things like that that spices have nothing to do with. Um, and so the spicer was... <laughs> It's almost like it's kind of like a fitness coach and a diet uh, consultant, um, but also a bit of a cook and a chef because they were also adding spices to the food. So it was a really uh, interesting configuration. That's why I say it seems very modern to me because you know the the rich have these types of people now. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. It was again, as with so much of these things, it was a preview of coming attractions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, maybe you can underline how how spices that you say enlarge the map of possible desires, which in turn enlarge the map of, of the world. Uh, so spices were a big driver, right, of, of uh, global interconnectedness. It, it is the beginning of global interconnectedness, right? I mean, we we the first truly global markets were goods that were created, um, in this case, grown in one part of the world, were traded. Um, with people who lived on the other side of the world, you know, spices were really the first uh, example of this. And we still live with the kind of echo of this map that, that spices created because the first integrated trading network was the Muslim um, spice network that formed right around that time when we were talking about earlier about the golden age of Baghdad. And that the, the, the map of that network uh, where Muslim spice traders um, kind of sold people on these interesting new flavors from around the world. That is the map today of global Islam. All the places where Islam tried to conquer through military force, like Spain, for instance, it, 
you know, it didn't really take hold. But places where the spice trade did business and these spice traders integrated into their communities, these new communities, and doing business and sharing the, the idea of Islam, that's where we still see, uh, you know, heavy Islamic populations today, 1,200 years later. Well, we're out of time. Uh, let me. I just have to mention this. You'll have to go to the book to, to flesh this out. Uh, Hedy Lamar, the movie star, was an amateur inventor, and uh, she worked on a frequency hopping project for Naval Communications. And that, that's uh, we have this sort of thing in cell phones, Bluetooth and Wi-Fi uh, now. So uh, many interesting uh, bits in this book, uh, very well worth the read. Uh, Wonderland, How Play Made the Modern World. Uh, Stephen Johnson's also author of How We Got to Now and other books. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Really enjoyed it. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Ashley Stilson, reporter for Utah Public Radio. UPR is a community-based organization, and we want to hear from you. Tell us what you want to hear on the radio. If you have comments, questions, or story ideas for any of us at the station, we'd love to hear from you. Please visit our website at upr.org or call us at 1-800-826-1495. You can also share ideas with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just be sure to include the hashtag IamUPR. And hey, thanks for listening. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.